Greetings, conversationalists all across the Fruited Plains. Rush Limbaugh, E-I-B. The most dangerous man in America, with the largest hyperthalamus in North America, serving humanity simply by opening my mouth, destined for my own wing in the Museum of Broadcasting, executing everything I do flawlessly with zero mistakes, doing the show with half my brain tied behind my back just to make it fair, because I have talent on loan from God. Rush Limbaugh, a man, a legend, a way of life. Welcome, everybody, to the Campus Preacher Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, lofnetwork.com, or crosspolitic.com. And if you head over to the Cross Politic Network, you can become a member, join the club, get some insider information, um, and uh, other teachings that we have going on, as well as you can go over there and register for our Fight, Laugh, Feast rally, which apparently is different than a conference, but it's a rally in Rapid City, South Dakota, April 29th through May the 1st. And it's an absolutely beautiful area of the country. If you've never been to the Black Hills or southwestern South Dakota, it really is beautiful. I have not been there in April, so it might be a little windy, but um, it is a gorgeous, gorgeous place. And it's worth a trip as well as what we have going on, where we will be learning to love God, sing song psalms, and defy tyrants. That's what we're going to be doing. And one of the people that have been instrumental in helping me defy tyrants has been El Rushbo, the Maha Rushi, the all-knowing, all-seeing Rush Limbaugh. And he died this morning, and I actually started listening to uh, his audiobook, uh, The Way Things Ought to Be, just to hear his voice. And it uh, brings back some memories and some sadness. Rush was a pretty instrumental figure in my life early on. I first came across Rush Limbaugh probably my sophomore year of high school when we were going into the Iraq war under the first Bush. And I was at my friend Dave's house and his older brother was listening to the radio and started talking about this guy and how he's filled with common sense. And I remember kind of sitting there and listening to him for about 30 minutes and just being uh, mesmerized by everything he was saying. Um, but he was on during the school day, so I did not get to listen to him much during the school year. And we'd get to listen to him over the summers. My dad would be bringing me to like tennis or something like that. And I remember being in the car with him and uh, listening. And anytime we were in the car during that time of day, we'd be listening to some Rush Limbaugh, and he'd be having his take on whatever the issues were. And I remember just thinking this man is a genius. I would uh, be curious to go back and listen to some of those shows in hindsight um, and what content he was expounding as, uh, you know, I, I know a little bit more now, and I'm going to have a little bit more of a biblical worldview rather than just conservative understanding of things. And he definitely at times was more Republican than I would ever dare to dream to be. But nonetheless, he was very influential on me, and he was really influential. And I've mentioned this story before on this podcast um, about a year ago, but during my junior year of high school, I was actually a liberal. I was a pretty hardcore Democrat. I had some good friends of mine whose parents were hippies, and we'd just sit around their dinner table. and It'd be a pretty close to a libertarian discussion on most things of what the U.S. government was doing, but then the remedy was usually some sort of socialist-type answer. So I kind of bought that the government really did have an answer to most things, and it was it was the typical argument. You know, let's just say if it was poverty, uh, person A has a billion dollars, person B has zero dollars. We'll just give him a million, and you know, problem solved. That's that was kind of the simplistic answer that I sort of had. And it seemed to make sense. Here's a guy with a lot of money. Here's a guy with very little money. Transfer some of that money over there, and everybody's better off. I is what I kind of thought. So I was kind of a left winger, and I remember wanting Bill Clinton to be president back in. 
1992 when he was running against Bush. At least initially, I wanted him to be the Democratic nomination nominee. I remember listening to him or listening, reading about him in like Newsweek or one of those weekly uh, news political journals that they would have in the library in high school. And I would read them and I remember thinking, this Bill Clinton guy, he's got to win. And uh, sure enough, he won the nomination. And then uh, midway through that campaign or right around the Democratic convention, I remember being in Columbus, Ohio and debating my brother and his roommate on welfare. I knew neither heads or tails. I was just saying, nope, transfer money. And they had had some at least reasonable economic arguments for why it was better. And uh, I felt persuaded, and I felt like I lost the debate. And as we're having that discussion, my brother, we went out to the bookstore. I think it was may have been Borders Books around at the time, and he bought me Rush Limbaugh's The Way Things Ought to Be. And I read that book in one weekend, and I just remember kind of being blown away by it and thinking it was uh, amazing and filled with common sense. But the thing that stood out the most in reading the book was there were a couple points where he appealed to God's existence for the necessity of morality in one way or another. And that was the thing that stood out to me the most. I had, I'd kind of been, a, broadly speaking, a, a believer. I grew up in a liberal Episcopal church. I had to learn the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Nicene Creed going through confirmation. And I essentially believed, but I, I wasn't really committed to it. And uh, But I felt a little bit like Rush kind of gave the intellectual ammo, even though it was minimal, um, to be like, yeah, there needs to be God if there's going to be a moral order. And much of the stuff I was arguing for at the dinner table with my at my socialist friends dealt with the morality of things, that we needed to look after the poor. And and so I, I had an intuitive sense that there was a moral order. I just didn't really know where it came from necessarily. I, you know, I had a basic belief in God, but Rush just kind of pointed out that these things come from God. And so that kind of stood out to me. And then over the next year, I started taking morality a bit more seriously. I had a friend commit suicide, so I started taking it really seriously. And the more I took morality seriously, the more I realized I was a sinner and I needed uh, grace. And so that turned me to other things outside of politics. Uh, I started doing some transcendental meditation, reading some Islamic literature, and then finally coming to the Bible in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your anxieties onto Christ because he cares for you. And I became a believer uh, back in the summer of 1993. And by the grace of God, I'm still a believer. And Lord willing, over the next, uh, if he gives me another 40, 50 years, I will persevere until uh, the end. But in revisiting Rush's book this morning and kind of thinking about him throughout the day, I figured, you know what, I'm going to do a podcast, a little tribute to uh, Rush, I remember over the past year when he was first diagnosed with cancer, and I kind of regret not doing it. it was, oh, you know, what? I'm going to call the show and let him know the impact he's had on me. And, uh, you know, more recently, Rush has made a profession of faith. His brother is a solid, David Limbaugh is a solid believer, has written a couple decent books. If you're looking for kind of a pop level, um, just kind of scan of the Bible. I think his books would be helpful, even mildly apologetic and things like that. So I know he had some people speaking to his life about the gospel, and hopefully Rush really believed in the resurrection of Christ, and we look forward to hopefully resurrecting with him, and I can talk to him one day and say, Megadittos Rush, that was, uh, if you're not familiar with that, that was kind of a way to say you agree with him. People would call on the radio show and say, Megadittos Rush, and I always look forward to Open Line Friday, and he, and he would just have an Open Line Friday, and then these little cheers, and people would call in with any topic, and Rush was always just so good on his feet, um, interacting with people and responding to arguments, and I was always impressed with what he was, and sometimes when I'm on campus, I'll describe what I do is basically like, it's like, because people are like, you really preach for five hours? Like, well, just think of it like the Rush Limbaugh program, um, but it's Christianity. And and so in many ways, um, that's that's what I I kind of perceive myself as doing. And went off to college, I actually thought I wanted to do a Rush Limbaugh radio program. I even had, I even wanted to put up little billboards that said, and you thought Rush was right. Boom. So a little little play on the word right. And uh, I used to get this magazine called The Conservative Chronicle. It was a weekly 
a summary of a bunch of conservative articles printed around the country throughout the week. It was called the Conservative Chronicle, and I would read through that, and I would take notes, and I was building, uh, I kind of wanted to build an encyclopedia, what's right in politics A to Z, and I was writing down, you know, here's all the arguments on taxes, here's all the arguments on taxing or racial issues or um, zoning, whatever it was, I was I was reading up on all these things and taking notes and putting them in order and saving all the magazines or the newsprint and trying to put something together. And so in revisiting this morning, I realized uh, how great Rush really is. And uh, from an entertainer standpoint, even from a, a humor standpoint, I, I think uh, well, when we think when I think of doing evangelism, and, and here's the hard part, I guess, what I think of doing evangelism, you have two things going on, you want to have a lot of fun, I think, and delight in preaching the gospel. We also are not out there to entertain, we want to uh, share the gospel. And there's an appropriate uh, heaviness, uh, glory to the things that we're doing. And so we can't always have it light, but we should be able to always have some joy about what's going on. And uh, this stood out to me because in the introduction to the book, he has a little thing called advisory. And the advisories, basically Rush Limbaugh was, they try to cancel Rush before cancel culture was really where it is right now. So he he had a uh, editor named Dame Judith Reagan, and she was harassed for months uh, prior to the publication of the book because people did not want Rush to have a platform to publish his book. And Many of these individuals, Rush would claim, had not listened to him or uh, read anything or uh, knew really anything that he believed, only that he was not, quote-unquote, politically correct. And so this is, you know, going back 27, 28 years, and Rush was already, you know, not politically correct. It was kind of, I felt like when it was ramping up. And he, so he says this in this advisory section of the book. So beware, there are people out there, communists, socialists, environmentalists, wackos, feminazis, liberal Democrats, militant vegetarians, animal rights extremists, liberal elites who will try to prevent you from reading this book. And then he has this little section which I just thought was uh, pretty funny. He said, I consider advising you to uh, place the jacket sleeve from a similar size copy of the Bible over this book, which would place you in less jeopardy. But I then remember that you wouldn't be legally be allowed to read it in a school or during a commencement ceremony or many other public places because God is unconstitutional. Besides, reading what would appear to be the Bible in public would cause you to be accused by some civil libertarians of attempting to force religious views on them. So forget that idea. Please, uh, Just please be aware that reading this book in the wrong public places could result in it being set on fire or you being pelted with rotten vegetables. Don't be frightened. Read it anyway. Here's a part where he, I, I think we can glean something. Be courageous and brave as Dame Judith Reagan, and don't be intimidated. Smile when they stick their noses in the air and harumph. Laugh when they confront you and ask you why you're reading fascism. So this you know, this fascism thing is nothing new under the sun. Ignore them when they call you a fat slob. Rush was a little chunky back in the day. Chuckle when they blame you for hunger in Ethiopia. Smirk smugly when they accuse you of prosperity. When they accuse you of insensitivity, cry fake tears and say that your parents are making you read the book. Everybody knows that parents are the real problem because they voted for Reagan. For those of you among the liberal elites who take a stab at reading this book, be forewarned. Everything in this book is right, and you must be prepared to confront that reality. You can no longer be an honest liberal after reading this entire masterpiece. Throughout the book, you'll be challenged because you will actually be persuaded to conservative point of view. Whether you admit, uh, whether you can admit this in the end will be the truest test of your mettle 
as a human being. Now get to it. And so just that whole introduction, I think you can see uh, some fingerprints, like not fingerprints of Doug Wilson uh, one way or the other, but some Rush Limbaugh on Doug Wilson or Doug Wilson on him. And they'd be comparable about the same age. I think Doug's maybe three or four years younger uh, than Rush. But you kind of have this happy warrior type of thing. And Rush would often say that he is having more fun than a human being should be allowed. And I believed him when he would say that he's having more fun than a human being should be allowed. Uh, I enjoyed listening to this program uh, when I was younger, even my freshman year of college. Uh, I would sit there during lunch and listen to him. Uh, but but within that, the place where I, I want to maybe give a little more attention is, is basically how he helped lead me to my conversion. He was one of the means that God used to uh, convert me. And so I'm going to read a couple quick sections. I'm going to look at uh, really three things going forward from here. He has a, just pull a couple quotes from this book on morality, and then a section that he has called The Battle for America, and then uh, he was also known for often saying, talent on loan by God, from God, which I uh, referenced in the beginning, oftentimes he'd start his uh, show, and he'd talk about half his brain tied behind his back, and um, how he has talent on loan from God. And I remember becoming a Christian and being mildly put off by that and having a discussion with my sister. Um, but if you go to his book, he explains what he means uh, by that. So regarding morality, uh, he had a section of the book where he talks about things that he believes. It's almost like a Rush Limbaugh credo. And most of the things in there, we as conservatives, uh, Christians, could come pretty close to signing off on. Uh, you know, Maybe there's some nuances here or there. But, but by and large, I mean the broad strokes, uh, I, I could largely affirm everything there. But he starts off with this, which is a pretty conservative idea. He says, I believe in specific ideas, and those ideas have consequences. So that's kind of from a famous Richard Weaver book. I believe R.C. Sproul also had a book called Ideas Have Consequences. So it's a pretty conservative idea that uh, you know, ideas have consequences, and the uh, more so than where if you have a Marxist, they're going to be a bit more determined by economic factors, more so than straight up thought. So, so a materialist is going to have a slightly different view of things than than a conservative on that. That's often why there's uh, huge gaps on where we're getting, where we're going. But uh, the the part I want to read here, after listing a series of things that he uh, affirms, and I would largely affirm, he says this. That strong, I believe, that strong, wholesome family values are at the very core of a productive, prosperous, and peaceful society. That those values cannot be instilled by government, but can indeed be sucked dry and eliminated by well-intentioned but destructive governmental programs. That human life is sacred, and that God placed man in a position of having dominion over nature. That there is one God, and this country was established with uh, with that foundational belief. That our morality emanates from our divine creator, whose laws are not subject to amendment, modification, or rescission by man, that certain fundamental differences between man and woman exist in nature. So here rushes, you know, 20, this is probably written in 92, so we'll call it 29, wow, 29 years ago, Russia's writing this. And a lot of it's, you know, a lot of the same cultural issues that we're still going through today. Um, we've teased out a bit more of the transgender stuff, but even at the time, the feminists were arguing that the differences between men and women are not found in nature, but they're socially constructed and part of the patriarchal system. And so the smash the patriarchy idea is old, but I believe that the logical implications of smash the patriarchy is transgenderism. Uh, you, you, if there, if our identities are socially constructed, including that of male and female, um, then the idea of transitioning uh, is really no big deal. And even if you consider that we all came out of one lump, uh, if you're uh, in, the, in the Darwinist paradigm, uh, that you know you kind of had this asexual being that gave Gave to the binaries and all that sort of stuff. Even even we've transitioned over billions of years. So whether you do it over billions of years or you do it over uh, six months, three years, what, you know what's the radical uh, difference really going on there? And so even when he talked about morality emanating from God, those are the sorts of things that when I was reading this as a sixteen year old. Uh, 
kid uh, really began to stand out and really began to make sense uh, to me. Then he had another section here where he's talking about uh, the context is Clarence Thomas, where uh, when Clarence Thomas said that his uh, mother told him that when they took God out of schools, that's when everything started to go to hell. And he started to get some pushback from like the Atheist in America Club and all that sort of jazz. And um, and then and one of the common refrains, I don't hear this comment anymore, but one thing you'd always hear in the 90s from liberals is that you can't legislate morality. And uh, that, that was it was just every discussion you had about morality, especially around abortion, was you can't legislate morality. But the reality of it is we all know that every piece of legislation is argued in terms of morality. Why do we need universal health care? We can't have people dying in the streets. Well, that's a moral issue. So the reality of it is progressives, I, I don't hear anybody use it anymore, but if they go to use it, you can quickly appeal to the reality that everything that they're arguing for is actually the legislation of morality. So it, it really doesn't hold up. But Rush says this, you know, this whole notion that morality is something which uh, can... Uh, cannot be imposed on people is simply ridiculous. Morality certainly descends from religion and is one of the main sources of our law. Although some legal scholars, humanists, and atheists do their best to scramble this premise with such doublespeak that before long, those who cherish morality and its roots are defending their very right to breathe. So heinous are they accused of being. The simple fact is that morality cannot be defined by individual choice, by allowing everyone to simply do as they please, as though there are no consequences to their behavior and actions. This is anarchy, and we are living it, experiencing it in certain segments of our society today. Morality is a system of virtuous conduct based on principles of right and wrong. If we can't teach the difference between right and wrong because some paranoid civil libertarians determine that it is an imposition of religious views, then we are adrift in a dangerous sea. There may be legitimate philosophical arguments over what is right and wrong, but they would be have to be so esoteric in nature. Fundamental right or wrong, such as defining the Ten Commandments, they are not the set Ted's suggestions, as Ted Koppel likes to point out, uh, is not arguable, nor should it be. And so that just made sense. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's a pretty direct argument. Um, you, you, you don't make up morality. Our culture might want to say that we construct reality uh, or construct morality. Russia's saying, you know, we can't rescind these things. And obviously there's a certain level which the state can. They can legalize abortion. We can become murderers. Um, and, and so depending on how we're using our terms, but we would want to maintain, no, there's a fixed moral order. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill. Um, thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, thou shalt not covet. Uh, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All those sorts of things are not negotiables, but the way uh, the world really is. And so, uh, you know, I found those helpful when I was 16, 17 years old. Hopefully that those little quotes are mildly helpful to you. And then one other thing that Rush gets out here, he has a section on page 281 called The Battle for America. And this is another uh, good little section. He says, debate over whether America was founded on a religious nation is not an academic one. To destroy a people, you must first sever their roots. The great Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote, those who would undermine America and turn it into an egalitarian utopia know they have to first chip away at the faith of Americans. And this was Antonio Gramsci's, and if you ever, the, you know, kind of the cultural Marxist attitude is, it's not so much these economic means of production, but you got to, because of the culture in the West. That's why communism's not sweeping the West, because of the culture so you have to undermine it. That was kind of a, a Gramscian view. So he says, first, you need to chip away the faith of Americans at the very spiritual foundations. They will try to convince people to replace their faith in God with a belief in alphabet soup agencies, faceless bureaucrats, and government giveaways. But man is spiritual being. If his faith in God is destroyed, the void will be filled with something else. Throughout history, that substitute for faith has been a belief in a man-made God called the state. Untold crimes have been committed in its name, Hitler and Stalin being the most recent bloody examples. The separation of church and state in our Constitution is there to protect Americans 
is not there to protect Americans from religion. It is there to protect Americans from the government. But in their desire to promote their secular humanist philosophy, using the power of government, many liberals today want to alter America's heritage and remove religion from its history. Their desire is not to safeguard denominational neutrality by the state. It is to eradicate every vestige of religion from our institutions. Liberals didn't always believe that. William O. Douglas, one of the most liberal justices ever to sit on the Supreme Court, once wrote that we are religious people whose institutions presuppose a supreme being. Now think about that. If, if our institutions, as Douglas says, presuppose a supreme being and our whole cultural climate is to eradicate a supreme being, what happens to our institutions? And if our institutions goes, what then happens to the people? Going back up to the Solzhenitsyn quote, you can destroy the people and you sever their roots. And then he just says, it's it's time we remind ourselves and our children of that and returned, uh, return religion to its honored place in the life of this nation. And so, uh, I, I, you know, that's by the grace of God, what I hope to do preaching on college campuses, hopefully you with your families and your friends and in your community, that's what you're seeking to do there. It's a good thing that, um, you know, blessed is the nation whose uh, God is God. And, um, that's, that's what we're seeking to do. Um, to, to, to bring the gospel to bear on every tribe, tongue, and nation. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to make the argument that everybody in American history was Christian, but the fingerprints of Christianity is clearly all over, this country uh, for good and ill <coughs> at various points, and uh, I think we should um, appreciate that, fight for it, argue for it, and realize that we do have a history, and one of the things I feel like many people have, uh, many Christians have particularly, is we are severed from our history, and there's a certain place for that. In our baptism, we die to our old ways and our old life, and I believe Paul did that when he counted uh, Judaism dung for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus and and you know, all the things that he lays out there. But he also says, I wish I could be accursed uh, for my people according to the flesh in Romans chapter 9. And so, and you think of John Knox saying, give me Scotland or I die. And so we need to be those type of people who have one foot in heaven, one foot on earth, and we are pleading with God to give us our people, um, the American people, the people in Virginia, the people in North Carolina, uh, wherever you are currently living and hopefully building um, an identity and being caught up in time and space wherever you are uh, to do that. And uh, the, the, the way forward for America the, is, is not more elections, although, uh, you know, I want to win some elections, uh, but the way forward is, is truly uh, the gospel. And that got me thinking of Russia's comment when he says, talent on loan from God. And he, his definition in the back of the book is, talent on loan from God, often misunderstood by hypercritical and sensitive types to mean, I think I am God. On the contrary, I believe I am what I am by the grace of God, and that my time on earth, as is everyone's, is temporary. And his temporal life ended today. We are all on loan from God, you see. And so Rush hopefully saw his life, every jot and second, every word he spoke, every thought, word, and deed he was going to have. His whole life um, was on loan, so to speak, from God. And he is an image bearer of God. And he will give an account for everything he's ever done. Um, he's been married multiple times. Uh, I remember him getting in trouble at one point going to a foreign country with Viagra and stuff like that. So whatever was going on in his personal life, there are many sins that Rush Limbaugh uh, would need atone for, and you have many sins. Uh, you live 70 years, you're going to have many sins uh, you need atone for. And even if you have the classic you know, idea that it's not really a true understanding of sin, but if you commit one a day, 365 days a year for 70 years, how many sins do you go before the presence of God with? And that's being generous by giving you one, uh, and that's not able to get after the nature of the sinfulness of your heart and living in unbelief um, for all those minutes of every day. And everything that's not of faith is sin, according to the scriptures. 
So as I was thinking about this, I wrote this today. I just says, Russia's temporary time on earth is done, and he now stands before the judge of all the earth to give a reckoning for all of that talent that was on loan, giving an account for every thought, every word, and every deed he's done in 70 years, every single one of them. And the scriptures tell us it's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Who can stand that day? No way that Rush can. Can you? Are you more righteous than Rush? Rush's hope and yours is in the God who freely justifies the wicked. Paul says, quoting the psalmist, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is done by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. And so, to my knowledge, in the past year, at least, Rush Limbaugh has made a profession of faith, and so all of his sins are forgiving. And it's a pretty amazing thing if you think of 70 years of sin being wiped clean and God bringing him in and Rush Limbaugh entering his rest after a battle with cancer. So there's a lot of things that we can take away from the life of Rush Limbaugh. I think kind of being a joyful warrior, uh, being a happy warrior, uh, and taking the battle to people, having some fun with it, uh, not being afraid, being un- being willing to be unpopular, um, and then from there just kind of being commonsensical. I remember that's one of the things that really stood out to me at the time. And you know, we're not political, and we are Christians that, in one sense, want to figure out how to be all things to all men. So we do need to win friends and influence people in a proper godly way, learning to uh, lay aside certain cultural things and holding other ones firmly uh, in order to share the gospel with people. Um, But I think the life of Rush Limbaugh is something that we can greatly appreciate as Christians. I know I am eternally grateful for his book and the work that he did, and just even just changing the nature of the conversation in many instances. Um, but it's nice. Life is now over, and uh, relatively sad. It was uh, pretty sad for me to hear the news, and especially as I thought about it and listened to his voice a few times, it's like, man, won't be able to hear it again, which actually, about 20 years ago, I think when he had to get his cochlear ear implants, I remember listening to him on the radio and being like, man, what's wrong with him? Because he was starting to go deaf, and he couldn't hear himself. I could tell that he was kind of slurring some of his speech um, or, or was coming, I don't know what the right word is when someone's going deaf and their speech just kind of, because they can't hear themselves, begin to lose it. But then he got the cochlear ear implants. I remember kind of being sad that I thought he was going to be going deaf and we're going to lose the show. And even though I wasn't listening to it at the point, I remember uh, thinking that was going to happen. Uh, fortunately, it didn't. We still got another, whatever, 17, 18 years out of the man uh, from that point. Um, but now his life's over and we won't get the program again. But I uh, wanted to call. I wanted to call Rush in the past year. I did not do it. Would have loved to tell him mega dittos and let him know that he turned me into a campus preacher for better or worse, or helped turn me into a campus preacher for better or worse. So that's this episode of the Campus Preacher Podcast. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me, Keith at campuspreacher.com, Campus Evangel on the Twitter, Campus Preacher on Instagram, Keith Daryl on Facebook. If you have any, uh, yeah, if you want to reach out, feel free. God in heaven needs us, so we're